schedule is available on our website. Uh, tonight's lecture is uh, sponsored by the Walter E. Edge Fund, uh, which, um, which was founded in 1957 in the memory of Walter Edge, uh, who served twice as governor of New Jersey and also as a United States senator and ambassador to France. Past lecturers have included George F. Cannon, John Kenneth Galbraith, Edward Heath, and Isaac Asimov. Tonight's lecturer is Marina Mahathir of Malaysia. And she'll be introduced by Professor Lee Silver of the Department of Molecular Biology and the School of Public and International Affairs. Please welcome Lee Silver. Good evening. Um, I'm going to introduce Marina uh, Mahatir to you. She's a remarkable woman who's had a major impact on the education and health of Islamic women, not just in uh, her country of Malaysia, but in other Islamic communities as well uh, around the world. Uh, she's been a journalist since 1980, and she continues to write a biweekly column in the, uh, called Musings in the Malaysian daily newspaper, The, the Star. Uh, and she's taken an active role in a variety of issues that affect women. She's a member of the uh, Women's Aid Organization, a shelter for battered women and children, a supporter of Sisters in Islam, an organization that advocates for equality and justice for Muslim women, and a board member of the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Center for Women with the acronym ARROW. In 2000, she helped develop and produce a new TV program for young women called 3R, Respect, Relax, and Respond, which deals with issues such as health, career, information technology, relationships, and sexuality. And the program now in its 11th year won an Asian TV award for best infotainment program in 2002. It's also been the first Malaysian television program to be franchised overseas in, in uh, the Philippines and uh, in Indonesia. Um, but Marina is best known for her work on, on HIV AIDS. She was elected the president of the Malaysian AIDS Council, and she is chair of the board of trustees of the Malaysian AIDS uh, Foundation. Um, she uh, spoke to the United Nations General Assembly World AIDS Day event in 1996, and she's chaired the Fifth International Congress on AIDS in Asia and the Pacific in Kuala Lumpur in 1999. We're absolutely delighted that Marina could uh, join us tonight to, to give us a talk on her knowledge and insights and experiences that she's gained. The title for lecture tonight is Fatal Confluences, Islam, Gender, HIV, AIDS in Malaysia. So, Marina, please come. Thank you, Professor Su. Well, good evening, everyone. First of all, let me thank uh, Princeton University for giving me this honor of speaking here today. As someone who never went beyond my first degree, it is something that neither I nor my former lecturers could ever have imagined uh, in my undergraduate days. For the past 12 years or so, I've been working in the field of HIV AIDS, mostly in my country, Malaysia, and in the Asia-Pacific region. 
I was working not as a scientist or researcher or an academic in any way. What I did was mostly try and draw attention of the public and of governments to the very real but hidden dangers of the HIV-AIDS problem pandemic in my country and region and advocate for quick action before the disastrous impact of the pandemic was felt. I cannot in all honesty say that I was successful. In my country, the numbers of people with HIV have continued to rise from about 6,000 reported cases in 1993 when I started work to over 70,000 by the end of 2005 when I stepped down as president of the Malaysian AIDS Council. This fact has been a source of great frustration, angst, and sorrow for me because I know that these numbers do not tell the real story. They do not tell the stories of the many, many more people who do not figure in the numbers, the wives, widows, lovers, mothers, fathers, siblings, children, orphans, friends, and communities also impacted by AIDS who simply do not turn up in the statistics. In the course of working in the hugely interesting and dynamic, dynamic field of uh, HIV-AIDS, I've truly come to believe that nothing shows up the worst in any society than an AIDS epidemic. Like a dye that is injected into one's body before a scan, AIDS shows up the gaps, the failures, the fault lines, the inequalities, the corruption. Also, it shows up the prejudices, the cruelties, the willful blindness of so many governments and societies to what's happening in their midst. To be sure, some countries have been able to deal with their AIDS epidemic successfully. In many cases, this has meant being willing to admit the realities of their societies that contribute to the spread of HIV, and being also willing to change mindsets, cultures, and traditions because the old ways were killing people, and in so doing, also killing the communities and societies the same cultures and traditions were meant to perpetuate. Thailand was one of the early examples of a country that managed to successfully cut down their rates of infection way back in 1991 by, for the first time, making a health issue a top government priority led by the Prime Minister himself. By doing that, along with realistic programs such as the 100% condom program, the Thai government effectively saved about 2 million lives. In Senegal, a mostly Muslim country, along with mass education about HIV-AIDS, widespread condom promotion and distribution has resulted in a 4% prevalence rate, the lowest in sub-Saharan Africa. But apart from successes in a few countries, by and large, the HIV-AIDS global pandemic marches on relentlessly and more and more countries fall behind in prevention and cannot catch up with treatment, resulting in a future of many deaths, many orphans, and setbacks in development that only serve to perpetuate the cycle of disease. In this paper, I do not intend to discuss the entire global HIV-AIDS epidemic and the whys and wherefores that are causing over 40 million people to be living with the virus today. There's enough literature explaining this already. But over the years, I've become interested in one of the many issues that the red dye of AIDS has highlighted, and that is the intersection between gender inequality and women's vulnerability to HIV infection. At the same time, because I'm a Muslim woman living in a Muslim-majority country that does have an AIDS epidemic, I have become particularly interested in that confluence between how Islam plays itself out in modern Muslim societies, particularly in gender relations, and how that affects the way women are impacted by AIDS. These, therefore, are some of the thoughts that I will speak out loud in this lecture. Let me begin with some qualifications. I'm not and will never pretend to be an expert in Islam. 
I'm particularly sensitive to this, as recently I've been subjected to many personal attacks because of remarks I have made about the state of Muslim women in Malaysia due to recent amendments to our Islamic family laws that I believe are discriminatory towards women. I accept the Quran as the source of all that governs our lives as Muslims, but I do believe that Islamic jurisprudence, which the many personal laws of our various countries are based on, not only come from diverse sources, some of which contradict one another, but are also dependent on human interpretation of the Quran, which in turn is subject to many human frailties and failings. Chief among these failings is the patriarchy that characterized the time and place during which the most prominent jurists lived and which must naturally govern the way they saw the world. There have also been many people who have written about Islam and gender, both with conservative interpretations and with more progressive feminist ones. I don't pretend to be expert at either. I'm coming from a different perspective, that of an AIDS activist who is looking for both an explanation for the particular vulnerability of women in specific societies, as well as a way of empowering those women to protect themselves. Time and time again, it's become clear to me that the role that religion plays in setting gender roles is key to understanding women's vulnerability. This is across the board in many countries and within different religions and cultures, but my interest here, because of my own country, is within Islamic societies. I'd also like to make clear that I do understand perfectly well that when people talk about Islam, they are often collapsing many different Islams into one. While there's only one Quran, interpretations vary over time and place depending on who's talking. And besides the Quran, the Sunnah, the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, there are the various Sunni schools of interpretation, there are the Shiite schools, there are the laws that are implemented in different Muslim countries. In Malaysia alone, there are in fact 14 different Muslim laws, as Islamic religious laws are under the control of each state in our federal system, a legacy of British colonialism. Each one differs slightly from one another, although there are now slow moves to standardize them. Therefore, when people says, say Islam says this, or in Islam such a thing is allowed or disallowed, it may or may not be true across the board. Only when people say the Quran says such and such will it be true, but even so, interpretations of what the Quran means, so subject to human understanding and bias, may vary. In trying to understand how Islam as is practiced today enhances or reduces women's vulnerability, I had to look for material for understanding sexuality from an Islamic point of view because sexuality, as well as the power relations between men and women, is so central to understanding ways to prevent sexual transmission of HIV. In doing so, I've been fortunate to have been able to both read and listen to the work of Dr. Keshia Ali of Brandeis University, whose work on marriage and sexuality in Islam has helped me to focus my thoughts on this subject. In particular, Dr. Ali's work on the sources of the Islamic marriage contract has allowed me to find ways to think about particular aspects of Islam and gender that might assist me in also thinking of ways to prevent HIV infection in Muslim women. Why do I feel it's important to look at this religious determinants of gender roles in working in HIV AIDS? There are several reasons. For one, in many developing countries where AIDS is hitting hard or is beginning to hit hard, religion plays an important role in people's daily lives. In countries like Thailand, Indonesia, India, Cambodia, Malaysia, people do not confine religion to once-a-week rituals but live it on a daily basis. It governs the very way they behave, their relationships with one another, and it governs the way men and women treat each other. Secondly, religious leaders have a lot of influence in these countries. What they say, both positive and negative, goes, 
And without the engagement, I think it would be extremely difficult to do effective prevention programs in any of these countries. One negative word from any of them can affirm stigma and discrimination. One positive word or action can alleviate the same. Almost every country concerned with AIDS now cannot afford to neglect religious leaders in the national response. Thirdly, women's vulnerability to HIV is at least partly determined by the gender roles assigned to them by society. These roles are often determined by religion or what is thought to be religious precepts. Women's sexuality in particular is an aspect of womanhood that is often controlled on religious grounds, when she can marry, whether she should have children, whether she has any right to have sexual pleasure, whether she can divorce her husband. All these are determined by religious rules, which sometimes do have a basis in actual religious texts, but may have been interpreted and implemented in ways that may not have been divinely intended. My, inten my intention today is to float some thoughts about the way religious laws as implemented in Muslim countries enhance the vulnerability of women to HIV. I will primarily talk about the situation in my country, Malaysia, because that's the country I know best, and because I'm concerned that recent changes in the Muslim family laws there may impact in the way the AIDS epidemic is spreading, especially on women. This is necessarily not the final word on the matter, but I hope that this will stimulate the discussion on the subject with a view to some ideas on how best to effect better prevention for Muslim women. The global AIDS pandemic has affected the lives of more than 60 million people around the world, mostly in developing countries in sub-Saharan Africa and now increasingly in Asia. While countries are not classified by religion, nevertheless, some parties have made it a point to categorize some countries and the impact of AIDS on them by religion. AIDS in the Muslim world is considered worthy of particular inspection. Hence, the existence of a report in 2005 entitled Behind the Veil of a Public Health Crisis, HIV-AIDS in the Muslim World, produced by the National Bureau of Asian Research based in the United States. I will not go into the many controversial assertions and generalizations that abound in this report, but only to underscore this point. No other disease apart from AIDS has ever merited reports based on the religion of a country. There is no avian flu in Muslim countries or SARS in Muslim countries reports. What is more, while there seems to be a need to have reports on AIDS in Muslim countries, there are no comparative reports that I know of on AIDS in Buddhist, Hindu, or Christian countries. I would suggest that the constant need to define AIDS through religion only serves to underscore the subtle implication that AIDS is always linked to morality and that the constant need to report on AIDS in Muslim countries, mostly negatively, is yet another attempt by certain quarters to disparage whole populations and their governments because of their religion. AIDS, unfortunately, to my mind, is yet another pawn in the so-called clash of civilizations. Yet HIV prevalence rates in Muslim countries are generally low. According to the Joint UN Program on AIDS, UNAIDS, prevalence rates in countries with large Muslim populations range from under 1% in Malaysia to 4% in Senegal, compared to places like South Africa or Botswana with over 20-30%. However, several factors must be taken into account. One is that surveillance in many Muslim countries is generally poor, even in those with the finances to do so, my country being one example. This may be attributed to a lack of desire to know the true situation for fear of what it should say about their societies, and a denial that certain social conditions such as drug use, sex work, and same-sex relations exist and may contribute to the spread of HIV. 
Also, as pointed out in many reports, including the NBR one, a low national prevalence rate, a low national prevalence rate may mask high local prevalence rates. For example, certain parts of the country may have very high prevalence rates of HIV among drug users or among sex workers, but when averaged out with other local statistics, national rates may come out as low. Having said that, low prevalence rates, whether real or false, are no reason for complacency. As the history of the global AIDS pandemic has shown, every country has begun with low numbers. But depending on how these countries respond, the numbers will either grow quickly or slowly, but grow they will. I want to be clear that I'm not agreeing with any report that implies that when Islam is the religion of the majority of citizens of any particular country, they will be particularly vulnerable to an AIDS epidemic. The global AIDS statistics clearly show that regardless of religion, countries can become vulnerable to HIV when all the conditions are extant within its borders. These would include poverty, denial, and social inequalities. How any country responds to AIDS is crucial, no matter what level of development it enjoys or suffers from. Poor countries can deflect the worst impacts of AIDS if they recognize its dangers early and respond quickly, as has been seen in Senegal. Rich countries can become complacent and assume that the worst is over, only to see infections rise again, as we are seeing in parts of Australia. When AIDS first came to the notice of the world, there was a prevailing belief that men were far more affected by it. The first high-profile cases came from the West among homosexual men. And then the virus was also found among injecting drug users who were mostly men. Added to that, most scientists, researchers, doctors working in HIV were also male. And thus, it took a long while before women were recognized as being not just equally vulnerable, but differently vulnerable and impacted by HIV. There are many biological reasons why women easily become infected with HIV, but more importantly, there are also many gender-based reasons why women become vulnerable. Male bias in research meant that women were simply neglected. When only male sexuality is studied, female sexuality is ignored. When AIDS among drug users is compartmentalized as simply injecting behavior and not also sexual behavior, it was easy to not see how whole swaths of vulnerable people, the female partners of drug users, were being missed. It was only when babies were found to be born HIV positive that someone made the connection. Even so, the first reactions were to save the babies with little regard for their mothers. Antenatal testing for the purpose of administering zidovudine or nevirapine to reduce mother-to-child transmission was touted as a tangible prevention opportunity. And indeed it was, but at the same time, mothers of these babies soon died for lack of treatment, leaving them orphans. But most of all, women were becoming infected because of their low status in their societies. It's no coincidence that the countries where women are most vulnerable are also where they suffer very low status, where women are able to make few decisions in their lives, have little opportunity for education or jobs, where they bear the brunt of conflict, where they suffer violent abuse. These are also where they're suffering most from HIV. Since my focus today is on the impact of Islamic religious laws on gender and HIV vulnerability, I would like to present some thoughts I have on some aspects of Muslim views on marriage and sexuality that are particularly relevant to the vulnerability of women. These are marriage itself and the concept of nushus, polygamy, divorce, and as an interesting sideline since it's being touted so much these days, abstinence. Surah 30 verse 21 of the Holy Quran says, And of his science is this, 
He created for you helpmeets from yourselves that you might find rest in them, and he ordained between you love and mercy. Marriage in the Quran is viewed as a most solemn pledge and covenant, a consenting contract based on the mutual agreement of the two spouses. The emphasis on love and tenderness and of consorting in kindness is apparent in the Quran. Men and women are each other's garments, meant for mutual support, mutual comfort, and mutual protection, fitting into each other as a garment fits the body. Yet how have these words translated into the real world? Marriage is indeed a contract by mutual agreement between spouses. In this, both parties have rights and responsibilities, and many writers have argued that in this way, Islam provides more rights to women than any other religion. But as Dr. Kesha Ali shows in her essay, Progressive Muslims in Islamic Jurisprudence, the Necessity for Critical Engagement with Marriage and Divorce Law, advocates for women's legal rights, implicitly accept the basic structure of the marriage contract as understood by Muslim jurists to be the divinely sanctioned norm for Islamic marriage. However, she contends, this framework is not God-given, but rather was developed by man, working at a particular time and place, governed by certain assumptions. I'm not going to repeat Dr. Ali's entire compelling essay, except for some salient points that she makes after a thorough analysis of the views of early Sunni jurists. The main point is this. The overall framework of the marriage contract is predicated on a type of ownership, milk, granted to the husband over the wife in exchange for dower payment, which makes sexual intercourse between them lawful. Further, the major spousal right established by the contract is the wife's sexual availability in exchange for which she is supported by the husband. As Dr. Ali also admits, this view of marriage as primarily an exchange of money for sexual access would be unthinkable today, even by the most conservative thinkers. But she contends it was not controversial during the time when it was originally conceived and indeed gives various examples of explicit statements by the early jurists that support this view. As appalling as this concept of marriage might be today, I would suggest that some of the thinking behind it still exists in modern Muslim marriages, and this has tremendous impact on women's ability to protect themselves from HIV infection. If women marry and then are obliged to always make themselves available for sexual relations with their husbands. How then can they refuse a husband whom they suspect or know is HIV positive? While we can interpret Quranic injections that there be love and mercy within marriage, in reality, how can we use this to ensure that husbands do not transmit the virus to their wives when they believe that they have a legal right to sexual access to their wives at all times? In Malaysia, for instance, we have had numerous stories of women who, suspecting their husbands of being HIV positive, often because they are drug users, run to their mothers for help on how to refuse sex with them. But their mothers have only been able to advise them to return to their husbands because it is their duty to do so, meaning they cannot refuse to have sex with them. Undoubtedly, no mother educated enough about HIV would consciously send her daughter off to be infected. But at the very least, least, I think such a mother would be conflicted about what advice to give her daughter. 
refusing to have sex with their husbands or leaving the marital home to escape such demands from their husbands can lead Muslim women to be guilty of nushus, a term translated as disobedience, recalcitrance, or rebellious. This means that the woman loses her right to support as long as she remains unavailable to her husband, the very basis of the marriage contract in the first place. How then do women who have no other means of support and who do not want to be seen to be disobeying religious laws protect themselves? The answer perhaps lies in re-emphasizing men's responsibility to care for their wives with love and tenderness and not to pass on illnesses that would bring much pain and suffering to their wives and future children. Educating men better about these responsibilities, responsibilities may be the answer. And the practical application of this responsibility is, of course, the use of condoms. Thus far, however, most responses to this problem has been of the punitive kind, where mandatory premarital HIV testing is touted as the best way to protect women from such irresponsible men. But such testing does little to protect women from husbands who may become infected later on in life rather than upon marriage, nor does it empower women any more than before such testing became available. Instead, it reinforces patriarchal notions of protection of women and simply prevents them from entering into a marriage that she may then have difficulty in getting out of. It seems to say that marriage is a deal that you have to go in with your eyes open, and once you have entered it, then you must make your bed and lie in it. While it can also be fatal for men, for women, however, this can lead to disastrous lifelong consequences, even if she evades infection, due to the stigma and discrimination that she shares with her infected spouse and the enormous burden of care that she has to provide. The same notion of maintenance in exchange for sex explains the refusal of many Muslims to believe in the notion of marital rape. If women enter into marriage, they are obliged to accept the notion that they must make themselves sexually available at all times. Thus, marital rape is a contradiction in terms. Shafi juries contend that a wife's sexual refusal while remaining at home also constituted nushus and was grounds for suspensions of maintenance. The Hanafi view was that if she is in his house, but she holds herself from him, is maintenance due to her from him? It is due. Is it lawful for the husband to have sex with her against her will? It is lawful because she is a wrongdoer, or zalima. Muslim women, therefore, have little recourse in law to protect themselves from HIV infection from their own husbands. The concept of men as wrongdoers seems not to be emphasized, even though he may bring all sorts of calamities on his family due to irresponsible behavior. To be sure, HIV-positive men also suffer from stigma and discrimination. But it is women, often already invisible in society, that are driven even more invisible in the epidemic, especially when she has no means to fight injustice. Although today Islam is the religion most frequently associated with polygamy, it is neither the originator nor the only religion practicing polygamy. Polygyny exists in many parts of the world, in ancient pre-Islamic times, and even today. Both polygamy and polyandry were practiced in ancient times among certain sections of Hindu society. Writings about the Old Testament mention the existence of polygamy, although not approvingly, and as late as 1650, the parliament at Nuremberg decreed that because so many men were killed in war, the remaining men could marry up to 10 women. Different views exist about polygamy in Islam. 
Surah 4.3 states that if you fear that you shall not be able to deal justly with the orphans, marry women of your choice, two or three or four. But if you fear that you shall not be able to deal justly with them, then only one, or a captive that your right hands possess, that will be more suitable to prevent you from doing injustice. Yusuf Ali's translation explains the context of the surah. Notice the conditional clause about orphans introducing the rules about marriage. This reminds us of the immediate occasion of the promulgation of this verse. It was after Uhud when the Muslim community was left with many orphans and widows and some captives of war. Their treatment was to be governed by principles of the greatest humanity and equity. The occasion is past, but the principles remain. Married orphans, if you're quite sure that you will in that way protect their interests and their property with perfect justice to them and to your own dependents if you have any. If not, make other arrangements for the orphans. The allowance for up to four wives was a limitation, not an encouragement, at a time when men were used to taking limitless numbers of wives. The next ayat which states that if justice cannot be done with many wives, then only one will be more suitable is seen as an encouragement towards monogamy, which is more just. More conservative interpretations, however, regard the surah as not so much emphasizing monogamy as allowing polygamy as long as the husband is fair to all his wives in every way. In any case, it should be remembered that not all Muslim men practice polygamy, and in some countries, it is a practice that is dying out, such as in Morocco, and even banned, such as in Tunisia. In Malaysia and Indonesia, however, it remains an issue of frequent debate between conservatives and progressive Muslims, particularly feminists. In the era of HIV-AIDS, however, polygamy raises some interesting questions. In many countries, including Muslim countries, AIDS prevention messages have focused on equating promiscuity, that is casual and indiscriminate sex with many people, with the risk of HIV infection. Promiscuity is rarely defined in just this way, however, but images and words used in Malaysia, for example, suggest that promiscuity means any form of illicit sex, that is, sex that is not sanctioned by marriage, haram sex versus halal sex. Thus, premarital and extramarital sex is frowned upon, regardless of how few partners these actually entail. As far as the human immunodeficiency virus is concerned, however, its survival depends on its ability to transfer from one human to another. Therefore, any form of multiple partner sex would increase its chances of survival by facilitating transmission into new host bodies. The virus itself is not concerned with whether host bodies are having sex with one another legally or not. Thus, messages about promiscuity present a problem. Married people are not regarded as promiscuous, promiscuous, even when they are actually in multiple partner situations such as polygamous marriages. I'm not suggesting that all polygamous marriages will lead to HIV infection. However, should HIV enter into such an arrangement, then it will be mostly women who are vulnerable. Let me illustrate with a small example of an actual situation occurring in one state in Malaysia. The state of Kelantan in northeast Malaysia is known for its religious conservatism, having been ruled by the opposition Islamic party for most of the past 30 years. Yet there are many social problems in the state, including drug use and HIV-AIDS. 
Between January and June 2004, Lantan reported the highest number of HIV cases per state in Malaysia, much of it, like the rest of the country, attributed to injecting drug use. In the past two years, nurse counselors at the general hospital in the capital city of Kota Baru have noticed a growing number of women diagnosed with HIV, some eight to nine new cases per month. A new organization, Prihatin, set up to support these women in 2004, currently has 105 HIV-positive women as members. An analysis of the background of these women revealed how potentially easy it would be for many more women to be infected. Many of these women had married young, at a young age, to men who were drug users, became infected and died. These young HIV-positive widows with children had limited means of earning income. Some wished to marry again in order to ensure their own security. And in Kelantan State, uniquely, there is no stigma against women marrying several times, one after the other. Therefore, some of these women remarry, but often to men who are already married, sometimes more than once. In other words, these HIV-positive women become second or third or fourth wives, often without informing their husbands of their status. Therefore, the possibility of the virus transferring from these women to their husbands and then onwards to other wives is a very real one indeed. In January 2006, the Kelantan State Religious Department began a mandatory premarital testing program for Muslim couples. While this has met with approval from women as a means to know before they marry if their husband is already infected, it also means that HIV-positive women, such as the ones I've described, will be deterred from marrying again because to do so would mean revealing their status. This in itself, without support from the government and others, can lead to the further transmission of the virus if these women's options for their economic survival become severely curtailed and then some may resort to sex work. Prihatin is trying to avoid such a possibility by providing training and small loans for them to start their own businesses. It must be remembered that with the current loosening of regulations governing polygamy in Malaysia in the amendments to Islamic family laws, these possibilities of the spread of infection in areas with high incidence of HIV are there. Unlike previously when their knowledge and written approval was needed, married women will not have much say if their husband contracts a marriage with another woman. I'm not pinning the fault on the HIV-positive woman who marries for social and economic reasons. The possibility of a polygamous man becoming infected at any point in his life through both injecting drug use and unsafe sex is always there. In either case, it is women who are not protected. To remedy this in the short term would require vast amounts of public education, including the active promotion of condoms for married couples. It would also require active awareness raising of the rights of women to their own health and empowering them to insist on their husbands using condoms. This, however, as with everywhere in the world, is not easy when marriages are weighted heavily against women in the first place. The opposite of marriage is, of course, divorce. It's often said that divorce in Islam is easy, with the man having to only pronounce the talaq three times. In many Muslim countries, this simplicity has been tempered by rules and regulations to protect the interests of wives, including, for example, the necessity to pronounce the talaq in court before a judge for it to be valid. This does not mean that Islam condones easy divorce as such. 
As Prophati Osman explains, Islam teaches that marriage should be maintained as long as the essential requirement for peaceful family life and mutual care and respect are there, even if emotions and romance may not be as strong as they were before. Thus men are exhorted to consort with them in kindness, for if you hate them, it may happen that you hate a thing wherein Allah have placed much good. 419. The Quran then provides several steps for dealing with marital discord, beginning with discussion, then the suspension of sexual relations, then some slight physical correction, then arbitration by others. If all else fails, then divorce is allowed. These recommendations do not always translate into what actually happens on the ground. As with polygamy, rules and regulations governing procedures for divorce may vary from those that hinder to those that facilitate. Unfortunately, in my country, recent amendments to procedures have only served to make divorce easier to the detriment of women. Recently, a man who pronounced the talaq on his wife by short messaging system, SMS, or texting, from his mobile phone, was fined 500 ringgit, which is approximately 133 US dollars, for divorcing his wife outside the court. That was the crime, divorcing outside the court. It was not an admonishment for using new technology to dissolve his marriage. Given the inherent flaws in using SMS for such an important life decision, we have to wonder what's happened to justice in this case. What then happens to women who are HIV positive in this situation? With antenatal testing programs available, women are often tested before their husbands. If diagnosed positive, they then face the risk of being divorced without any compensation. They can be accused of zina or adultery if the husband accuses her of acquiring the infection elsewhere. Or they may be accused of bringing shame onto her husband and family and face the possibility of being regarded as nushus. In the states of Klantan and Trunganu in Malaysia, where hudud laws based on very strict interpretations of the sharia are used, and pregnancy in women can be used as evidence of fornication and adultery, even if they have been raped, how big a step would it be to also use HIV infection as evidence of the same? It is, as it is men who have the power to pronounce divorce subject to the courts, women who are HIV positive are left with little recourse and with no means of support. Treatment for related illnesses are expensive, even with government subsidies as they are in Malaysia. Kindness, therefore, is not a factor that comes into play in these cases. Cases of women being thrown out of their own homes along with their children have been known to happen, and shelter homes for such women have become a necessity. My recommendation would be for ways to be found which prevent women from being divorced too easily. Investigations of why a man wants to divorce may reveal that, in fact, the fault if any, is not on her side. If indeed women have been infected by their own husbands, then if the divorce still takes place, then she should be afforded just compensation, preferably an amount that would enable her to obtain the treatment that she would need. Similarly, if a woman wishes to divorce her husband because he infected her, then she should be allowed the divorce along with the requisite compensations. In every case, however, the protection of all parties, especially children, stigma and discrimination must be paramount. In a seminar on gender and HIV AIDS late last year in Singapore, 
I was asked about the role of abstinence as a means of HIV prevention, since this is a concept that is currently being touted as the most effective way of prevention in some countries by some people. I accept that one way that you can be sure of not contracting HIV is by never having sex. But I often wonder who the proponents of abstinence had in mind when they promote this so vehemently. I would assume that abstinence promoters are mostly talking about unmarried people, people who would be having illicit sex. However, as we've seen from reports in every country, the virus does not care about the legal status of the sex. In fact, marriage itself is no protection, particularly for women. Married women are even less able to negotiate for safer sex or to refuse sex with their husbands than unmarried women with their partners. Thus, abstinence messages ignore the realities of life for married women and are completely ineffective for prevention among them. In Muslim societies where polygamy exists and sex is very much tolerated as long as it is legal, the promotion of abstinence is absurd. Since men enter into marriages with the implicit idea that they will have unrestricted sexual access to their wives, they are unlikely to accept abstinence as a model for responsible behavior. In situations like this, we have no choice but to promote condoms as a way, way of making sex, including especially legal sex, safer. Ladies and gentlemen, finally, in conclusion, I've tried to raise some questions of how we can best protect women in Muslim societies from HIV infection. It's true that if men and women live lives as the Quran recommends, then we would have very little to worry about. If men truly treated their wives with love and mercy, and if women indeed enjoyed all the respect and rights which God through the Quran says they should, then we would not need to look at ways to empower women in order to protect them. But the reality on the ground is far different. For various reasons, whether poverty, lack of education or gender norms, men and women do not and are not always able to behave in the ways that the Quran prescribes. People take drugs, for instance, even in Muslim countries such as Malaysia and Indonesia. They have illicit sex. They subject women to sexual violence and abuse. In this way, Muslim societies do not differ from any other society in harboring all the conditions that make the spread of HIV within them possible. But as with countries that have been successful in managing the AIDS epidemics, only a sea change in the way things are done can make a difference. Policies, laws, cultures and traditions that help to spread the virus need to be changed with the backing of strong political will. Most of all, Social inequalities need to be addressed because it is these inequalities that marginalize certain sectors of society by ensuring unequal access to prevention, treatment, care, and support. Among these inequalities, gender inequality is one of the most important to be addressed because as the increasing feminization of the global AIDS epidemic shows, not only does gender inequality enhance the vulnerability of women, but the spread of AIDS can also perpetuate further gender inequalities in treatment, care, and support. Gender inequality often has its roots in religious precepts. In Islam particularly, while the Quran itself emphasizes the equality of men and women, the reality for many Muslim women is that they are often discriminated against 
through interpretations that are patriarchal and unjust. It's not enough, therefore, to simply educate women about their rights. If the interpretations of these Quranic rights are already colored by patriarchy and weighted against women. What we need, therefore, is a reinterpretation of the Quran within a framework of equality and justice and the promotion of this new interpretation among both men and women. Only then do we stand a chance. Thank you. Thank you very much for that enlightening talk. Um, are there any questions from the audience that uh, would be directed towards Marina? Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to ask, um, you said that promiscuity is, is not allowed uh, you know, it's illegal, it's not allowed in, in, in that, that Muslim tradition. However, you implied that anyway, even though it's still happening, but then it's not discussed. Is that the case? And is that really, I mean, then how can you, they can't, if they can't discuss what's actually happening, because they assume that they're not promiscuous, but that's what's actually, so how do you deal with that? With great difficulty. Um, I mean, I think promiscuity is not allowed anywhere. I mean, promiscuity generally everywhere is a bad word. What I'm saying is that the messages that people get is about promiscuity. And promiscuity is seen as, you know, very wild sex, lots of partners and things like that. Um, and the implication is that uh, this will lead to HIV infection. Um, but in situations... But, but as I said, you know, all the virus cares about is how many partners you have and how it can transmit to another person. Um, so my, my um, question here is that how then do you get across that women in polygamous marriages, which is not considered promiscuous, even though it's still multiple partner uh, relationships, um, how do you then get across to these women that they are also vulnerable. Because um, the husband might be an injecting drug user and then he can, you know, give to, to all his wives. Is it only through drugs or is the husband no, no. sleeping around outside? Sorry? Is it only through drugs or is it common for men that are in marriage to be sleeping with other women? It's not just through drugs. Um, of course, there's also... Uh, sex with, with women outside marriage. Um, and yes, you're right. Uh, we don't talk about these things because they're not supposed to happen in Muslim societies. And, and as a result, we're not facing the realities of this public health crisis um, in a way that's going to allow us to, to you know, do effective prevention. Um, it, it's, a, it's not just a problem in Malaysia. It's a problem in many countries. Um, the denial of all sorts of things uh, going on within a society um, is, is very problematic for anyone trying to do uh, AIDS prevention. So it, it, we just have to keep talking about it as a way of being responsible rather than trying to... We, we're always being accused of um, tarnishing the image 
of our country by talking about these things. But I think it's much more responsible if we're doing something for AIDS prevention uh, by talking about them. I have a rather naive question because I'm a little puzzled by one of your solutions, the condom solution. I can understand your point in polygamous relationships. But even there, uh, if the husband denies that he is infested with HIV, uh, but certainly in monogamous relationships. Why a condom? How will you have children? Uh, and will you have serial testing throughout marriage, or you will, will you always take the words of perhaps some reprobates? I, I think what we have a situation is that there is absolutely no public promotion of condoms at all. So... Um, a lot of people don't even know that it's a prevention option, um, which means they're, they're having all sorts of uh, unsafe sex, whether within or outside marriage. Um, and um, for men who are already HIV positive, and, and who married men who are already HIV positive, th this is really what I'm emphasizing. Um, the only way to prevent their wives from getting infected um, is through the use of condoms. And um, this has been problematic because of a lot of opposition to the general promotion of condoms because it's seen as promoting premarital sex. And it's like here. I think you don't have much condom promotion here either. And in a lot of countries, it's the same. Um, but added to that is that there, there's a lot of confusion um, from a religious point of view, whether you can use condoms or not. Um, we had a small study in the, one of the, the largest hospital that, that uh, treats people with HIV among um, HIV discordant couples, which means one of them has HIV and the other one doesn't. And um, they're given a lot of counseling about what to do. Uh, and of course, it involves the use of condoms. But when they were um, asked again after the counseling, um, the lowest rate of condom use were among the Muslim couples. Um, and although they didn't explain the reason why, I, I would surmise that the reason is because there's a lot of confusion about whether condoms are okay or not. Islam has no problems with family planning. Um, and condoms is one of the methods, and, it, and in fact, a form of condom was used during the time of the Prophet. Um, but because there have been public religious figures who've, who've come down very hard against condoms, uh, because it allegedly encourages promiscuity, people are not sure. And I, and I suspect that's why they don't want to use it because they don't want to be doing something that is seen as, you know, um, irreligious or against religion. Um, and at the same time, I think there is a general male um, dislike for condoms that, that is given, you know, religious backing. Um, 
and makes it very, very difficult for women um, to protect themselves. Um, for we're not saying that you know monogamous, uh, faithful men should use condoms. There's no reason, but if there is a risk because they are they are injecting drugs, or they have had uh, sex with uh, sex workers, perhaps, or they are, know they're already HIV positive, then they have to. Um, and this is the difficulty. Um, for women who even bring up the subject, they have been known to have been beaten up because the implication is, you know, what are you saying uh, about me, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a huge problem, not just in Malaysia, but everywhere. Uh, protect, you know, women need condoms for their own protection, but um, because it involves uh, this relations with their, their men in their lives, it's been very, very difficult. I hope that goes some way towards explaining. I'd like to ask a question, which is that um, your efforts are very grassroots directed towards educating people at, at all ages, and but there's this problem that the political and religious leadership is entrenched in their views of gender inequality and, and their opinions about uh, about AIDS. Do you, how do you see overcoming the entrenchment at the top? Uh, do you think people are going to be able to rise up and, and convince political leaders to change their minds? Do you think it's going to take a generation? How do you see that? Oh, we can't afford to wait a generation. There will be no generation to, to come to. Um, it, it's a lot of work, uh, but we have to do it, and we have been doing it. We've been doing a lot of advocacy with uh, the political leadership, political parties, parliamentarians, um, by presenting the facts uh, about HIV. I mean, it's, it's we cannot assume that just because they're at the top, they know anything about HIV, so we often have to start with the very, very basics. For the religious leaders, particularly for the Muslim religious leaders, we have uh, been making a lot of effort to, to reach out to them, to educate them on, on HIV. It's, it's been a learning process uh, for us. We started off by trying to speak their language and, and failed dismally because obviously we don't know how to speak their language. So we returned back to talking about what we knew best and asking them, if they had any ideas on how to solve this problem, and they responded much better to that. Um, in the past uh, three, four years, we've developed a manual on Islam and AIDS, working with the religious leaders, getting them to put in their input, and we've been training them around the country, training various groups around the country, especially those at the grassroots levels, um, who are actually facing the problem already because they, they are facing drug problem in their communities, and, and with that also comes HIV. And they welcome this very much because they did not know how to handle this, and they knew they were not um, effective by just fall, falling back on, on the usual stuff. So they were very grateful for, for this sort of training and want us to do more. Um, unfortunately, our problem is with the bureaucrats who do not face uh, the problems on the ground. And um, every time uh, a, new, a new guy comes in into the, the department that, that we work with, 
um, he, he hesitates or stops the program while he re-looks at the entire manual because the manual does mention condoms. And, and so it's been slow. But um, I think it's one of the better programs that we're doing, uh, reaching out to religious leaders. I'll take one more question, then we'll let uh, um, Verena retire for the evening. Any last questions? I know a couple of Malaysia's <clears throat> sorry, a couple of, of Malaysia's neighbors, like particularly Thailand, focus a lot of their AIDS prevention on the sex trade. And I was just curious if Malaysia even had a significant sex trade that was a part of this problem, and if so, how does that play out in an Islamic society? Well, it's similar to the first question, really. Um, we do have a, a, a sex industry. Uh, it's not acknowledged. Uh, but uh, anyone who comes to Kuala Lumpur, capital city, or, or Penang, or any city with your eyes wide open, you can see it. Um, what happens is we do do uh, prevention programs uh, among sex workers. Uh, we meaning the, the non-governmental uh, organizations uh, in, in the, the organization that I used to head. The government itself will not touch it, but uh, they will fund us to do it, um, and, and we do uh, education programs. Our problem is really capacity, um, capacity to reach out to all the establishments, uh, not just in, in the cities, but everywhere uh, where it's needed. Similarly, we work with, um, well, we work with drug users, and we also work with uh, the gay and transgender communities, all of which are unacknowledged officially uh, by government, but they uh, ask us to, to do the work, which is fine. We can reach them better than they can anyway. But um, I don't think we are doing it at a scale yet that can actually make a difference uh, to the course of uh, the uh, epidemic. That's the main problem. Thank you very much for offering us your uh, opinions and experience in this area. And uh, please uh, give great thanks to Marina for coming here tonight. <laughs>